Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and the forthcoming Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question, and this time around, we're asking, how can we come back together again? Hello. It's six o'clock in the evening and I'm out on the dark beach. It's that time of year. The clocks have gone back and the dog still needs her evening walk. And so off we go, out into the night. It feels like crossing some kind of a barrier. I've walked through the dark back streets of Whitstable. And now here I am. The tide's in. The sea looks black. The stars are out tonight. It's a clear night. There is a waxing gibbous moon. Just over half going towards full. It's not too cold. It's actually fairly temperate. It's funny how hard it feels to come out here, how much I resent it when the dog clearly needs her normal walk. And then I get down here and the beach is a kind of magical place. It doesn't make any sense, a beach in the dark, you know. Beaches are for sunshine. 
That's what we learn when we're growing up. They're for sunshine and holidays and ice creams and warm months. And when I first moved to Whitstable, it was about this time of year, I think, November. And I had a house right on the seafront that I rented for just six months because the owner lived in Australia in our winter, their summer. And the first night when I couldn't sleep and looked out of the window, I saw the beach in the dark. And I'd never seen something like that before. The magic of it completely tipped me over. And it's still there now. It's one of those bits of magic in everyday life that you forget are there until you force yourself to go and see it. So here I am on the beach in the dark. And I can see the Isle of Sheppey lit up. And even further than that, South End. And I'm having to watch my steps so I don't fall over. <laughs> I think I nearly did then. <laughs> Ironically. <sighs> so... I need to gather my thoughts enough to talk to you about this week's episode, which is with another magical person, Simran Singh, who I wanted to ask about how we come together again, because his account of the life and philosophy of being a Sikh, and I learned from him to call Sikhs six and not seeks as I grew up saying he talks about how communitarian that life is how generous how loving and how focused on bonding with your fellow human feeling empathy for them understanding them rather than hating them even in the most dire of circumstances I think it's incredibly inspiring in these dark times and I wanted to introduce you all to him I hope you enjoy the conversation I'll see you a little later So Simran, welcome so much to How We Live Now. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to read a little introduction about you too, which I've already planned, so I'm going to do it. Simranjeet Singh is the Executive Director of the Religion and Society Programme at the Aspen Institute. He's also the author of the best-selling The Light We Give, How Sikh Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. A huge welcome. That's quite the job title you have there. <laughs> <laughs> Religion and society, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, just just a, a small thing to cover. I mean, it, it's, you know, you must get it done in half a week, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk to you today about the, the sort of theme of this cluster of uh, recordings I'm making, which is about how we can come back together again. And I'm excited to talk to you because your book reflects so much on that and about the ways in which your religious perspective brings this kind of communitarian 
belief system almost, which is all about connection. Am I right in saying that? That's right. Yeah, exactly. And I, it's it's so interesting to me as someone who was raised in a Sikh family and had access to these teachings for so much of my life. And, and as I share in the book, um, didn't really appreciate them or see them as particularly distinctive or valuable until very recently. And, and as I started to dig into them, realizing that there are some answers here in this tradition and another spiritual wisdom uh, that can help us address some of the biggest challenges of today. And so, yeah, I'm very glad to be here in this conversation with you on this topic. Yeah, well, I, I think we age into these structures that we're given, um, but it, it didn't come as a surprise to me that maybe you resisted them a little more when you were younger because it made you uncomfortably visible, I think, at school, particularly the wearing of a turban, which was a misinterpreted quite often, uh, but also just clearly marked out a difference. Can you talk a little bit about what you lived through as a, as a younger lad? Yeah, sure. Well, my parents immigrated uh, to the United States before I was born. So I was born and raised uh, in a place that many of you may have heard of before. It's called Texas. And <laughs> we were, my brothers and I were some of the only uh, turban wearing kids in all of South Texas. And so uh, we, we stuck out everywhere we went. Uh, people had questions for us. Uh, sometimes they were kind and curious and innocuous and sometimes they weren't so kind and not so <laughs> innocuous. And so so racism was was very much a part of our daily lives. And and I guess, you know, in 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 sticking with your theme for today, one of the challenges um that I that I felt around religious identity and also um American identity was, you know, so much of how we experienced the world had to do with our difference and, and how we looked. Uh, and how we perceived ourselves in in contradistinction to how other people perceived us, and so one of the one of the challenges becomes, well, why why do I have to live this way? You know, yeah. do I have to make this choice of choosing to look different and and making my life harder? And an, mm. and another piece of it is um, when there is so much attention on you uh, because of how you look, and there are real dangers um, when it comes to violence and racism and, you know, especially in a place like Texas. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so these are on your mind constantly. And how do you, how do you move beyond uh, the self-consciousness um, that you feel all the time of being different and, and get to a place where um, you can, you can really do what the spiritual wisdom offers us, which is mm -hmm. transcend the ego, transcend the focus on the self and make sure that you're not just constantly thinking about who you are and what you want and really thinking about yourself in relationship with the world. Yeah. And for you and loads of people in your community, you became particularly visible after 9-11. It's, it's, it's a strange experience because even before 9-11, I mean, we, people noticed us everywhere we went. So it's not that we were more visible and it's not that I had changed anything about how I showed up in the world. I mean, I was still mm. wearing the same turban and, and had the yeah. same beard I had every other day. I mean, what really changed was how people received us and, and perceived us and, and saw us, I mean, quite literally as the enemy and, and people mm. we knew were attacked and killed uh, just for being who they were. Uh, and we, we faced our fair share of challenges too. I yeah. mean, people who would come after us and, and, you know, deny us service or call us nasty names. I mean, it, it was, it was very intense. You know, I was 18 years old at the time. It was a, 
it was a strange experience to understand that the way that I saw myself uh, was was at odds with how other people saw me, right? And, yeah. and until that point, it was completely uh, reasonable and actually quite practical uh, to ignore uh, the hate mm-hmm. that would come my way. And, and, and all of a sudden to ignore it was actually even more dangerous than potentially escalating it. Because if I, if I didn't pay attention and if I didn't work proactively, then, then we would continue uh, to be in harm's way. And so it, right. it was a profound shift in my life uh, where I had to start uh, working against these issues that for so long I would have rather ignored and pretended like they didn't exist, but they did. And, and I had to deal with them. And it was, it, was a, it was a really powerful awakening for me. It's so hard that, I mean, particularly for a, a young person to just have no choice but to tackle something like that, to, to not be able to just hide away and go through your growing up in relative peace and privacy. It's, I really, I think that must have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it was difficult. I mean, I, I won't try and minimise the difficulty of the experience um, and also... I think what I've learned over the years is we each have our own challenges and, and life is hard for all of us. And, and one of the, I think, real dangers that so many of us fall victim to is thinking that what we go through is incomprehensible to the people around us, that they, that they don't go through similar ups and downs, that they don't have difficulties in their lives. And I remember during that period, just feeling so alone, feeling so yeah. isolated that my family was the only one in the world uh, who knew what it was like to be us. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and part of what really saved me uh, was, was starting to recognize that even though there weren't people in our neighborhood or in our town or in our city who shared our experiences, there were people around the country and I may have never met them. And, and they may not know who I am, uh, but we shared, we shared this journey in some way that we, we shared this experience. And I started to develop, I mean, it was, it was, it's a really strange experience. You, you, I started to develop a real connection with people who I had never met before. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't give you a name. I couldn't give you a face, but I knew that Sikhs and Muslims and South Asians and anyone with brown skin in America at the time was going through the same thing and understood my challenges and, and therefore I didn't feel so alone anymore and that there, there was some solace in that. Yeah, there is a, there's huge solace in realising that you're similar to someone else and, and kind of in sharing outsidership almost, I think. That's certainly what I've experienced through the internet quite often. And so mm. a lot of your book is, or your book, the sort of, I guess the, the point around which the light we give unfolds is uh, your response to a, a massacre of a a Sikh congregation in Wisconsin, I think, in 2012. And we're speaking right. today in the aftermath of a, another attack on a, a, a Sikh family in California. Maybe you could outline a little bit about the event that, that kind of inspired a lot of the changes that, that took place in you that you describe in your book, first of all, because I'm not sure if everyone's aware of it as, a, as an event, if I'm honest. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it was... Um... August of 2012, uh, when a white supremacist entered uh, a sick place of worship in Wisconsin uh, and opened fire on the congregation. Um, and he ultimately killed seven people uh, and took his own life as well. And at the time, it was the largest and most deadly uh, mass shooting at a place of worship in the U.S. in, in almost 50 years. Right. And 
you know, unfortunately, I have to say at the time it was because <laughs> there have been more uh, over the years. That, that record have been has been broken since. Yeah. yeah. Big, bigger and more deadly. And it's, I mean, things are not getting better. That's that's for sure. But but part of the experience um, in this and, and, you know, maybe this sort of speaks to, to your question about the difficulty and how we take on these challenges um, during these moments. I mean, of course, there was real pain and and sadness around the loss of life. I think for me especially it felt it felt like a, a slap in the face in in realizing so so personally and so viscerally how innocent people are are killed constantly in our world mm. because of because other people can't control their own anger and their own hatred. Yeah. And that 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 I, I remember feeling that so sharply in those days. And there was another aspect of it that um you know, it, it was sort of a jab uh, that I felt that even even though we've been here in this country for, for more than a century, uh, mm. still people have no idea who we are. And, you know, we could say this about the killer, but we could also say this about everyone who was covering these attacks, people who were watching, people who didn't even hear about them. And, and it, it, a lot of that has to do with uh, the lack of awareness and, and literacy around cultural difference. But I yeah. think the, the, the part that I found most challenging, and, and this sort of gets to the crux of your question here, the part that I felt most challenging was that this was the first time in my life where I wasn't able to see the humanity in someone who didn't see my humanity is, is maybe a way yeah. to put it right yeah. up until this point, even when people said nasty things to me or did nasty things to me or, or people in my community or other communities, I had developed a, a practice and an ability. And I, I think it was served me really well uh, in, in order to not get sucked into hate. Um, it had been consistently the case that even in those moments I could see the attacker or the perpetrator as human, as deserving of dignity, despite mm. their worst actions. And in this moment, I started to feel myself getting sucked into the anger um, and had real difficulty in finding the humanity in this in this white supremacist who had yeah. hate in his heart um, and took it out on innocent people and killed people with families who, who didn't deserve his anger, um, mm. but also didn't deserve to be murdered, um, especially while they, they prayed. And so that that presented me with a new challenge once I started to recognize what was going on internally of uh, of of wanting to and, and and really needing to to figure out how to deal uh, with this person and, and get to a place where I could see I could see the light in him as I, as I do as I try to do in everyone else that I meet. But that's such a question for our age, I think, uh, even if we're not directly affected by such a terrible act of violence as that that how do we how do we learn to see the humanity and and i think you would ultimately say the divinity in people who are so far apart from us that you know we we cannot think our way into a, a scenario in which we would go and do something like that it's it's kind of beyond our comprehension of what it is to be human but i mean despite that it seems like there was an instant response from the people closest to that tragedy in being able to to speak compassionately of it and and not to reach for hatred yeah and i i, I mean I, I share a little bit of this in the book i found that to be so inspiring especially because you know i'm i wasn't in wisconsin i have some family there but they were safe they were fine yeah. uh they weren't there the day of the attack and so i'm i'm 
although I'm a member of this community and feel connected to the people who were killed, um, it wasn't, you know, proximate to me in the way that it was for them. And mm -hmm. here I am struggling <laughs> with my own anger. And then I see them and I talk to them and they are living without hate and without fear. And they literally have, you know, this is, this is a teaching in our tradition. It's one of the first concepts in our scripture, no fear, no hate, nirbo, nirved. And they had this written onto t-shirts that they were wearing. And, and I heard them saying this and I saw this on their t-shirts and I said, oh my God, like these, yeah. these people are living into the best of their values at a time when it even, must be the most difficult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And if they can do it, then I should be able to figure this out. And, and, and so I had this, I had this thought in my head of like, I should be able to, this is, this is intellectually something I can understand, but still getting there emotionally was, it was a journey for me. And, and I'll say also part of, part of what I've experienced in my, in my work with, with victims of hate in, in this country and beyond is that it is not common uh, for me to see people respond to the people who attack them with love. I mean, that happens occasionally. It happens rarely, but when it happens, you, you see it and you, you really hold on to it and say, this is what I hope that I can be uh, in, in the worst moments of my life. And, right. and part of what I've learned is I think there is, there's something at least within Sikh philosophy that I found really compelling. That is this teaching that if we can really learn to see the light within another, within one another, then we can actually move beyond the very concept of, of stranger and enemy. Mm. And so there, there are some philosophies and, and some of which we, we know very well uh, and ascribe to, which say you should love your enemies. And I think that is a beautiful teaching and something that we could all learn from. Yeah. And I think part of what, part of what Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism would say is, actually, you don't even have to have enemies. Like we can get to a place where you're just loving the people around you and you don't need to see one another as being in, in opposition. In a very separate kind of a way. Exactly. Mm. We can mm. see each other as being in relationship with one another as opposed to an opposition or in contradistinction. And I, I think that is such a beautiful way to view the world. And I will also say that in this moment, especially during during the the attack in, in Wisconsin, it is so difficult to actually live that way on a day-to-day -day basis. My goodness, yeah. You make a case for, uh, or you use this Foucauldian term, the technologies of the self, to sort of almost explain how you can train yourself through practicing a certain belief system to control your response to a certain extent or to improve your response at moments like this. Please correct me if I'm getting this completely wrong. And so it's almost like we need to spend a lifetime preparing the way we think ready for these most difficult moments. Yeah. Well, it's, you, you'll appreciate this as a, as a fellow writer who, <laughs> who writes about aspirational experience. I mean, the, the funny thing about writing about this is that, you know, one might get the impression that I've, I've perfected this myself. And <laughs> yes. I, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. very, that's very far from the truth, but I, I can share what I've learned and what I'm, what I'm aiming to do based on what I've learned. And that is, yeah, I mean, you, you described it beautifully, uh, 
And I think, you know, we, we don't need a fancy philosopher like Foucault to tell us this. I think in even plain language, we can understand it. But Foucault was the writer through whom I came to understand this idea and how to put it into words. And, and basically what he says, and it's not rocket science, right? He basically says, if we put discipline into our lives and practice whatever it is that we identify as our values, mm. that practice will develop not just in terms of the skill that we're practicing, right? So if we're, you know, you could practice shooting a basketball and get better at basketball. Sure. That yeah. is, you know, you can get better that way, but the disciplinary practice actually does something internally too. And and what that does is it, it strengthens your inner fortitude, what he calls your, your ethical character. And, and I've experienced this in, in different ways. And, you know, in my, it doesn't just have to be spiritual, right? I, I talk in my book about how I experienced this through running and how going mm. through the daily discipline of preparing for a marathon actually made me more disciplined in other aspects of my life where it made it easier for me to make the right choice because I was making the right choice through my daily preparation. And this is what Foucault is talking about, that when you just have ideas in your head, but you don't put them into practice, you know, who knows how you're going to respond? Because you, you haven't really cultivated anything. All, all you have is a brain. I mean, your brain is not making these choices in these tough moments. And so what, what, what can you really do? You know, and, and what I have found is that for me, years of dealing with racism because of how I look, years of wearing my turban out in public and, and being intentional about how I respond because of how it reflects my community has really mm. developed. I mean, un, I mean, without me even being aware of this happening to me or happening inside of me, finding that actually it's really easy for me uh, when somebody says something hateful to me on the street to respond with grace. And my friends say that is you know, that's not normal, right? Like, you know, that's not how people normal. And, and they, they, they've asked me, like, how did you develop that? And so I've had to go back and, and really figure out the Almost process. Almost unravel it in retrospect, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's how, I think that's where this point from Foucault comes up, right? Like, you just mm -hmm. practice it, you live it, and then when push comes to shove, you're ready for those difficult moments. And sometimes they're not as easy as others, right? Like, like I struggled, even though I had years of practice. Uh, when yeah. this massacre happened, I, I really struggled to to hold on to my my discipline. But I think part of what enabled me to to get through that that tough period uh, was the years of practice that I had put in, so that I I could actually have a foundation to build on. So yeah, it is it is a really powerful teaching. But that you know that fascinates me because I think we're in a place at the moment where we seem to be governed by conflict. And we're all kind of afraid of that conflict. You know, it's not that anyone seems to be enjoying the culture war, as it gets called. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, a big part of it, it seems that we're afraid of the, uh, I don't know, criticism of our way of life that might come from our perceived kind of opposite side or that we're afraid of being hurt or harmed by, you know, the words that we might encounter. But what you're saying is that you had no choice but to encounter the harm and it made it much easier to, it, it gave you a technology almost <laughs> by mm -hmm. which you could handle it better and reduce conflict into the future. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's right. And as, as people ask me, 
I mean, this has happened since I was a child. As people ask me, why do you wear a turban? For most of my life, it never occurred to me uh, to say that it does, you know, it's an external article of clothing that I wear on top of my head. What sense would it make to someone if I said, well, it helps form me on the inside, right? Like, we don't yeah. think that way. And I, I never really thought that way. But there, there's also a teaching uh, and a memory within Sikh tradition that, um, you know, our, our founders and leaders are called gurus. And as the ninth one uh, was being executed, um, as he stood up to state oppression, the Sikh community, his followers, the, the, the tradition goes, did not stand up for him in that moment and did not step up in this time of need by by their principles. Yeah. And the 10th the guru, his successor, um, saw this and was hurt by it and said, you know, we are never going to be in a position again where we can hide who we are and, you know, not live by our values. And so I'm going to give you an external appearance uh, that everyone will know who you are and what you stand right. by. And, and so you're, you're going to be held accountable and that's going to be self-accountability, but it's also public accountability. And so this is actually something that I think about when I tie my turban every morning, right? Like I think about the values that my tradition gives to me, right? Integrity, service, justice, honesty, all, you know, all, all of these different teachings that, that our traditions mm -hmm. offer us. And I say, okay, today I'm going to do this and I'm going to live by this. And it's, you know, there are going to be in, in most in most cases, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's pretty easy. Uh, but then there, there are moments where it's not easy. And I'm going to make the choice each day that this is who I'm going to be and how I'm going to live. And so I think there is something um, within the intention of the Sikh identity that, that is meant to do this for us. So the visibility is like part of the point almost. Right. And it's, it's yeah. how the community, it's how we understand it, that, you know, when we talk about it, we'll often say to people, like, this is sort of like a uniform so people can tell who we are and know what we're about. Uh, but I think there's, there's another layer that I would add to that, which is, and then when we live into that, then we become who we want to be. And I think yeah. that's the, that's the trick that so many of us are missing as we, as we know where we want to go and how we want to become, but we don't necessarily know how to get there. I think this is, mm -hmm. this is part of it, at least for me. We'll be back to the conversation in just a moment. But first of all, we know how hard it is to find new podcasts and we thought you might love this one. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're the type of person who's constantly searching for your own path to a satisfying and fulfilling life, 
check out Reconsidering, a podcast that features some amazing thinkers who've gone deep on life's most challenging questions. Co-hosts Meredith Black, Bob Baxley, and me, Aaron Walter, speak with New York Times bestselling authors like Dan Pink about the power of regret to help you make smarter decisions, and Oliver Berkman about the absurd brevity of life, just 4,000 weeks on average, and how to let go of what doesn't matter so you can focus on what does. If you're looking for the best place to dive into reconsidering, we humbly suggest starting with episode eight, in which we talked with Catherine May about the power of rejuvenation in the winter passages of life. We hope you'll check out Reconsidering, the show about living a satisfying life filled with meaning. You'll find Reconsidering anywhere you subscribe to finer podcasts or by visiting reconsidering.org. I know how hard it is to keep representing that. I mean, you know, I'm autistic and I spend a lot of time in public talking about being autistic and me talking about being autistic doesn't always bring out the best in people, let's just say. (laughs) And, you know, for me, it's something that could very easily be invisible, but I choose to manifest it because I think it's, I think it's really important that it's made visible. Um, And there are other people in my community who don't get the choice about whether or not it's visible. Like I, I find it relatively simple Mm -hmm. to mask. It doesn't come without any effect, but I can whereas others can't. But what is so exhausting is the constant reiteration of explaining what we are because it's so poorly understood and having the, like finding the patience to be kind about that. Because I, I think, I think like you, I think often questions that can feel very grating are not intended with any offence at all. They're they're genuinely curious or they're genuinely mystified, at least. Like they come from a genuine place of not understanding, um, even if they can land in a way that feels a little aggressive. And I that's that can be very, very hard. And I I know that some people would say that it shouldn't be your job to explain or my job to explain to other people that they should be going out and seeking the information that, you know, that we shouldn't be doing that emotional labor. How do you see that? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, I hear you and I, I get that and it's hard. And um, <laughs> yeah. I know it's, it's, Weary it's, sigh. I think that probably said everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's tough also because, so, so here's what I'll say. I, I completely get the exhaustion that many people face that what you're describing is true for a lot of people. What, what I'll say also is I haven't found that personally uh, to be true of my experience. And, and I actually get a lot of energy out of it. And I've been trying to understand why, uh, mm. because I, as I listen to yeah. people explain Can why they're so tired, I'm like, do it, please? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not that. It's more like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I must be doing something wrong if I'm, if I'm, not, if I'm not getting it. But I, I, I'm the opposite in that I feel like I get so much energy out of out of sharing. And and I, I think what I would attribute it to is a mindset that my parents offered me when I was younger. Mm. And and part of it, I mean, you can you can hear the the burden or the obligation one way, and, and then I'll I'll share it perhaps mm. in a way that that sort of flips it. And that is growing up in Texas as kids wearing turbans, my parents would say, You're probably the only six that anyone 
will ever meet. And so make sure you make a good impression. And so of course, of course there's pressure there, right? Like you as a 10 year old are responsible for an entire community across the world. So, so there is pressure there. And what I started to understand was what a powerful gift that in a single interaction with someone, I could shape their entire understanding of a people that is underrepresented, misrepresented, unknown, invisible, and so on. And so I actually, over time, in recognizing the cost of cultural ignorance, started to see an incredible gift in it, which is, I mean, and, and something that was really liberating in that I had the agency and the opportunity to tell my own story, to shape people's impressions uh, about who I am. And they would actually listen and they would actually be affected uh, by what I had to say or even just watching me. I mean, one of the one of the strange experiences that I have is because of people's stereotypes here in the U.S. about what it means to wear a turban, I even just doing some of the things I love most, right? Like being out on the playground with my kids, running in Central Park or in a marathon or whatever it is, all of these things are shattering people's stereotypes. I mean, they're, they're acts of radical resistance for me and they're, they're constructive in terms of creating a better understanding of, of one another. So Mm. it's it's just a different way of slicing it and in a different way of viewing it but for me i think that feeling that i can help change someone and help them grow just with a simple interaction or a simple conversation like there to me there's always been something really exciting about that that's a that is such a beautiful way of seeing it and i yeah i mean for me i'm always thinking in terms of kind of duty almost like i it's my duty to find the patience to explain this because there was a point in my life when i didn't understand it too and i'm i'm always trying to position myself back at that time when i didn't understand and how easily i could have made horrible mistakes that would have really hurt people's feelings mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but i i just wonder if this is the the kind of everlasting optimism that <laughs> <laughs> that your religion mm. teaches you. Uh, that's that seems to be like a, a like a really key quality that you foster. Like always looking at things hopefully. Yeah, and maybe and may- maybe people listening will be like, man, that's so contrived. This guy, this guy is just. <laughs> I'm sure just they think a, that. <laughs> yeah, the silver lining on everything. But I mean, it is. I mean, here's here's what I'll say. I'll, I'll speak to it from a from a place of worldview and I'll, I'll i'll speak to it from mm. a place of practicality and and the worldview uh, in our tradition is that the entire world and every person and every moment and every place is infused with divinity like everything is a gift and and the challenge is can we learn to see our lives in that way and 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 part of what I think it's really difficult for people is is being willing to see that, right? Like, do I do I even accept the premise that everything is divine or everything is beautiful or everything is great? That's one that's one challenge, right? And that's that's up to people to decide how they want to understand the world intellectually or theologically or, or whatever whatever mm-hmm. term or approach you want to use. But the other challenge, and I think this is actually a more difficult one, is is actually making that choice. And I'll give you an example of of how this has worked for me. And, and, and I think this, this gets into the practicality for it. You know, when, when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened and, yeah. and New York, you know, was under siege and we were in Texas and, and, you know, my family, because of the hate crimes, 
against mm. people who look like us. Uh, we went on lockdown. We were we went home immediately. We shut down the house. We did not leave for several days. Mm. Um, the death threat started coming in the day of. And I mean, it was intense. We were scared as Americans of what was happening to our country. We were scared as six, what was happening to our community. We were hearing about attacks all over. And after a few days, my dad said, well, aren't we so lucky? And I said, what are you talking about? You must not understand what's <laughs> going on. We've been stuck indoors with days now. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And it, like, what, what, like, you know, I'm an 18 year old, so I'm annoyed by anything he says at this point anyway. So, <laughs> so I'm just like, come on, like, are you really going to turn this into a teaching moment? And he was like, no, seriously, like, have you noticed that our neighbors have been coming by with food, that your classmates and teammates have been calling to check in to make sure you're okay, that your teachers are checking in on you too? I mean, mm. it, was, it was such an interesting perspective that he brought to us, which is, yeah, there are a handful of people who hate us or who want to kill us or whatever that is. But notice the hundreds of people who are showing up for you, like who actually care about you. And he didn't, yeah. I mean, he didn't. He didn't say it so explicitly, but it was, I mean, it was such an interesting observation that he was making, which is if you choose to look around you with open eyes and an open heart, you will probably notice, as I have, uh, that there are so many more good people around you with good hearts and good intentions than there are people who have bad hearts and bad intentions, right? And like, yeah, yeah. the point is not you know, ignore the nastiness and let everything go and cultural relativism and all that. The point is really like we we are wired to see the threats, to see what scares us, to see what might endanger us. And, and we have to make a very intentional choice to also notice the good stuff that's constantly all around us and that we're probably not noticing or taking for granted or, or both. And so that lesson for me, I think, is is a really practical way of showing this teaching of everlasting optimism in the Sikh tradition, yeah. what we call Jardavikala, which is, it's it's not about some sort of superficial or soft version of living. It's it's just about making the choice to see the world for what it is, rather than the, the threats you're constantly perceiving based on how we're socialized or, or, or what we're worried about. Mm. I like you, I'm a great believer in deliberately noticing the <laughs> The good, like I, mm. I sort of, I flow with a strange optimism that I can never quite account for, really. But I just can't ever help but notice how kind the majority of people are and how concerned. And a, a lot of the time, I see people tipping themselves over into despair because they're so worried about other people. And it's it's hard to feel truly depressed about humanity when you realise that most people are desperate to to make sure everyone else is okay. And, and we might not always manage to make that happen, but that's a different mm -hmm. question mm -hmm. altogether. Yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful note. I mean, so so often people are asking what makes you feel hopeful or what gives you hope today? I think because we're looking so desperately for it. And I think it's, yeah. I think it's those, yeah. everyday, those everyday observations of, of the normal people who are not in the news, um, but they're the, the vast majority of people who just, like you're saying, mm. desperately want everything to be okay. I mean, that's, yeah. that's all they want. And yeah, there's something really beautiful about that. Thank you for saying that. Well, I, I think in all honesty, most people aren't particularly political and don't think in, in grand terms, you know, and public discourse is full of people who do think in big terms. And there's a, there's a sort of fragmentation there that we, 
that we don't understand is even present when we mm-hmm. we don't really mm-hmm. perceive the goodness because the stuff we hear is people making huge proclamations um which can feel very violent and very toxic i mean I'd, this is a question i'd love to ask you actually because because you write so much about connection and community one of the things it seems to me is that we've stopped trusting our own communities over the last few years and that's why we feel so desolate Do, have you perceived that too is that is that something that's happening in your world yeah absolutely and i think you know there are many reasons we can give as to as to why this is happening i mean there people have many different theories um i think many of them are true um people will be quick to point to phones and social media uh people will be quick to point to the rise in politicized uh news sources uh and and polarized news sources people will be quick to point to demagoguery in in politics i mean i think all of these are true and mm. the the challenge is really taking stock of the impact um and and really i mean i think the first the first step in in so much of of what ails us uh, in our lives is is acknowledging that there's a problem and and understanding what the problem actually is i mean we can we can we can take time to go back and trace the roots or the sources or the origins of, yeah, of yeah. what's what's creating these problems and and i think it's probably appropriate and healthy to do so so we can address them but i i think right now part of what we're seeing you know whether we're looking at suicide rates or whether we're looking at the mental health crisis um mm-hmm. or or we're looking at any any sort of metric around how people are feeling the big takeaway should be that we're we're in a lot of trouble we are not you know we we constantly tell ourselves that we're connected that we're more connected than any society in human history and in some ways <laughs> yeah. that's true and also um it it doesn't feel to me like the ways in which we're connecting um is providing us the nourishment that we need and and perhaps mm. we can we can take more seriously the possibility uh and i think the likelihood that we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're connected but we're not really and and there's a real cost of that yeah i i wonder if we're just available instead you know rather than actually connected <laughs> yeah that's a nice that's a nice word for it yeah mm. My parents used to talk about this when we were kids. I mean, and again, this was super annoying because we were kids and they were always trying to teach us stuff and <laughs> teach me lessons, mom. <laughs> exactly. But they would they would always tell us like life is about relationships. And and the big point they would make is at the end of the day when you're on your deathbed, no one says, "I wish I would have worked more." No one says, "I wish I had more money." Everyone says, mm. I just want to be with my loved ones. And we we experienced this this last spring as my my grandmother was on her deathbed. Um, And that's, I mean, it was very, I I was thinking about it a lot because that's all she wanted. And so, and so the, the, I think that one of the funny things about life is we all know this, we all know what the most important things are. And somehow we convince ourselves that whatever it is that we're spending our time on and that, you know, that again might be on our computers, it might be at work, it might be whatever, if, if mm. those relationships aren't there and they aren't deep, um, then, then the isolation hits quickly and it hits hard and, and it's really tough to recover from that. So I, I, I do think your, your note on the lack of connection <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe replacing whatever it is we're calling it as, as availability is, is, 
Yeah, it it is a, mm. it is a real concern, especially for me now as I'm raising these two girls and and thinking about the mental health crisis. Yeah, and sure. Trying to figure out whatever I can do to make sure that they stay healthy within this context. Oh, yeah, it's terrifying, honestly. If you know, if you're thinking about how 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 to raise children in a way that doesn't harm them, that doesn't let this world harm them, but which at the same time kind of harms them enough that they don't they're not completely vulnerable once they leave your mm-hmm. house you know it's mm-hmm. it's and i yeah i i just i don't know the answer but i am afraid at the moment that one of the things we're passing on is this extreme sense of separation from other people from and, and this kind of sense that uh, that opposing views are so dangerous that we must not encounter them you know that we must turn our back on people rather than put ourselves in the way of them but at the same time that they are hearing a wider range of views than they ever would have done you know that it would have had the opportunity to hear and I can't unpick whether that is good and healthy or whether that's just like having your brain exploded, honestly, because that's how it <laughs> often feels to me. Like I'm taking in so many perspectives that I I don't I, I seize up almost. You know? Like it's this complete stasis that I reach, and it's it's a very hard world to throw children into right now. I think it is. Yeah, it is, and and it's. I mean, it's it's tough enough for the adults as you're describing your experience. I'm I'm having flashbacks <laughs> to my own, which is. You know, I mean, I guess the question in a way is how do you navigate the the extreme diversity in our world? And, you know, we, mm. we talk a lot about diversity in <clears throat> in today's context and for a lot of good reasons. But there there is something tricky about how we do that in ways that are healthy and constructive for us. And and sometimes it I mean, I have the same feeling you're describing of, of sometimes you really try and open yourself up to different ways of thinking and different uh, people and approaches mm. and, and you hear them and you say, I'm, I'm not sure if this is actually <laughs> yeah. helpful. Like, well, those doors up again. I'm going to scuttle off. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah, exactly. And, and then the other, the other challenge internally is then like, am I actually living by what I am announcing? Right. I, yeah. I'm saying I want yeah. to be open and inclusive of, of different perspectives and, is it is it wrong to draw a line and and where where I draw the line is 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 it an appropriate place or am I am I doing it too early or am I doing it too late and yeah these these are all really difficult questions as as we're entering into this space well i mean diversity is such a beautiful thing and you know being in contact with a more diverse view of the world you know lets me read your book and understand these incredible concepts from Sikhism which I really think I will carry with me for a long time but of course it also shows me that you know ex-cousin is a bit more racist than I realised they were when I spent a couple of hours with them at a party a few years ago and that's that's the challenge that we're living with isn't it and and the challenge is to keep that into perspective but also to to understand that the challenge comes from our deep yearning empathy for others so often and and the huge sympathy we feel when we hear about other people's tragedies and the horror we feel when we realise that people are not being kind rather than necessarily because humanity is all bad, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. This is funny. I, 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 I forgot that we're on a podcast. I thought we were just talking to each other. So this <laughs> is like a nice little chat. That's not a conversation that I've had with others before. And I love getting into some of the discomfort around some of the issues that feel so comfortable, right? Like I could Mm-mm. talk in, in most contexts about diversity and inclusion and all the stuff I believe about it all day, but there, there are some aspects of it that, that I do, like you're saying, you're, you're, we, we all have that cousin who, yeah. <laughs> who's, yeah, we, who's we a little family different member. <laughs> and, and, and I have, you know, friends who are like that. And, and in many ways I'm grateful for it because it does challenge me and helps me grow. And at some point it, it does feel like there is, there is something to be said for having a compass uh, that guides us all and, and how we orient ourselves in this world, which, which could take us towards happiness and joy and, and connection as opposed to the division and the pain that we see being wrought over and over again. And so there, there, I, I, I feel strongly about justice um, and, and equity and getting to a place where everybody wins instead of so yeah. many people having difficulty unnecessarily. But I, I think, you know, the, the challenge for me is how we strike that balance. And then, and then also the mechanism, how do, how do we develop that in a way that is humane and authentic and empathetic um, and, and make space for people who don't want to be along for that same journey. And mm-hmm. yeah, that, that is a, that is a tough, that is a tough place to live. <laughs> well, the thing I love doing in this podcast is going down into a place of uncertainty. Cause I, I don't think we have certainty anymore. And I, I you know, I, I think we urgently need to stop faking certainty almost mm. like almost to learn to mistrust the people that are too certain because I can't see anything to be very certain about. But I think what I've learned from you is that what you can be certain about is your value system and that can structure the way that you think and, and it can train you to think in ways that are more generative and more connective rather than more dislocated and, and angry and anomic, I guess. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, I, I always appreciate someone who is who is open to ambiguity. I, I very much view the world <laughs> as being far more open uh, than the black and white mm-hmm. way that we present it as the true and false. Um, and, and I think so much of that is created by ego and and, and driving our, our, our egos and, and creating supremacies and hierarchies as I'm right and you're wrong and I'm better and you're worse. And yeah, I, I think this, this point about certainty, I couldn't agree more and don't often meet people uh, who are able to articulate it in a way that's so, so powerful to me. So, so thank you. And also the, the point on values um, as being, I think to me, at least a replacement for, for the certainty and, and saying, you know, Let's have a framework that we use that helps guide us, especially in the difficult moments. And, and those, you know, what, what I have found is when I can really lean into those values and those tough moments, that's the only, that's the only way that I found that I'm walking away proud of how I responded uh, rather than ashamed or embarrassed or disappointed yeah, yeah. or angry or whatever it is. And, and I think that that's the only answer I've found so far. Uh, to to how we can live in this in, in this super complicated world. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful conversation. That's just a wonderful place to stop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is great. Thank you, Catherine. I really enjoyed it. 
the moon is so bright. I live in a little cluster of houses near the edge of the town, near the edge of the sea, in the middle of the town. And I can see the moon from my back garden, but it takes a long time for it to rise far enough that I can actually see the whole of it. It has to get over everyone's house first, everyone's trees. But here on the beach, it's really visible. It still rises over the houses, but it's in big, wide open sky. I'm trying to identify the stars. It's a little hazy. I think I can see Mars way over the sea. It's looking very red tonight. It's amazing how that colour signature carries. And Jupiter, it's over by the moon where it's been for quite a while. I'd love to hear what you thought about the conversation with Simran. For me, it carried a real moment of revelation when he talked about, about how he can't avoid conflict in his life. He can't avoid people saying terrible things to him and that's in a way that's let him develop this skill of sitting with that conflict of kind of being with it and finding a way to respond it honestly made me realize what a privilege it is for someone like me to want to avoid conflicts, to want to avoid the fights that we're all having, the disputes and the arguments and the disagreements. Not everyone gets the chance to do that. And whereas people like Simran have had to find the bravery to confront them, we have to choose it. We can't keep exiting those situations that are so painful to us. That's a hard lesson to learn. I'm glad we're learning it together. I'm taking you back down the sea where I think the dog will have a little paddle. Will you paddle, Faggle? What do you think? Little paddle? No, she says she wants a biscuit. She wants a biscuit for not paddling. Come on then. You're a good gal. Yeah, she'll never stop being a street dog. She's always begging for biscuits. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I love having your companionship with me. And please do let me know what you think. It's a new feature of this podcast and we'd really love your voices as part of it. I'll see you really soon. Don't forget to go out in the dark. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for being here to explore how we live now. To share your comments, questions or answers, go to howwelivenow.info and write a message or record a voicemail. We'll be compiling the best ones into an end of season special. How We Live Now is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner 
and communications by Becca Pierce. For updates, show notes and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com. And finally, please consider pre-ordering my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.